Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. I appreciate our creative team so much, don't you? I remember when we did the promo for Clash One several years ago, we actually secured an opportunity to run those promos at a, an unnamed theater in our city uh, before the movies. And finally, they called us and said, I'm sorry, guys, we're going to have to ask you to not run those anymore because people keep coming to the ticket counter wanting to know when's that movie coming out. So... <laughs> <laughs> That's the new spring creative team for you. Well, we are in a series called Clash Three, a Clash of Dynasties Three, the Easter Prophecy. And here at New Spring, if you're if you're new, uh, I want to let you know that Clash of Dynasties is not just a title for a series; it's a title for an anthology. Because I had a sense a few years ago with what was happening in our world and the prophecies that were being fulfilled, I would need to come back and talk to you several times about Clash about prophecy. So we we gave the anthology a title. And this is the third iteration of the series. It's called the Easter Prophecy. And it goes to the fact that the night before Jesus was crucified, he told his disciples, I will come again. And then on the day that he ascended, a few weeks later, the angel said, this same Jesus that you've seen go into heaven will come back the same way. So we're focusing on just the return of Jesus uh, itself. And there are so many things we could talk about. In fact, I was sharing with our executive pastor yesterday that uh, I've only been able to cover about 20% of what I wanted to cover in this series. So is it okay if I come back next fall and we do Clash 4? Because there's just so much to talk about. Now, if this is a new topic for you, this idea of Bible prophecy, you may have heard somewhere in church or maybe in the movies that there are ancient prophecies in the Bible. Well, it's more than that. If you're holding a Bible in your hand or if you have an electronic device that has a Bible in it, one-third almost of the Bible is Bible prophecy. So this, this series is about ancient prophecies in contemporary times. Now, these prophecies that we see in the Bible that comprise almost one-third of the Bible, they're not vague like Nostradamus. I shared with you this in an earlier message that if you've ever read the prophecies of Nostradamus, you know that they are so stretched out of shape they can mean just about anything. That's not how the Bible is. And one thing that should be of note, and we'll kind of run across this in some of the scriptures today, is that a number of these Bible prophecies, about one-third of the one-third, have already been fulfilled with 100% accuracy. Hey, I'll, I'll put this out on the table. I mean, I'm an old debater from high school and college days. I'll offer this as a challenge. See if you can find any Bible prophecy that was prophesied to occur within a time frame that didn't occur just exactly like the Bible said it would occur. It's not the case. No, probably no sound person would take that, that bet because the Bible is fulfilled with 100% accuracy. That's just who God is. If God were to present his business card to you today, it might have this on it. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says, I am the Lord. And then verse 9, everything I prophesied has come true, and now I will prophesy again. And this is probably my favorite line that we'll ever use in any of these clash series. God said, I will tell you the future before it happens. Nobody else can do that. You know, prognosticators can pro prognosticate, guessers can guess, experts can 
can tell you what they think is going to happen. But at the end of the day, nobody knows what's going to happen 30 minutes from now. I'll tell you again what I said in the first week. If you could know what was going to happen for the next seven days, you might be flat broke right now, but you'd be a millionaire at the end of those seven days because all you would need is the stock quotes and if you're into betting, the basketball scores, and you could be a millionaire. So, but the problem is nobody knows the future. Now, here's my challenge, and, and I just want to, this is all introduction, so don't, don't, hold me, don't, don't make me count these minutes, okay? This is just introduction. To be honest with you, Bible prophecies are being fulfilled so fast, I can't even keep up with them in this series. I've been following Bible prophecies since I was a teenager. In fact, I think that was, I, I've always been a little bit of a skeptic. Faith has always come hard for me. I've shared that with you before. But one of the most compelling arguments for me of the veracity of the Bible was fulfilled prophecy. And I've watched these prophecies fulfilled for all of these decades. But I've got to tell you, I've never even remotely seen anything like what we are living in today. These prophecies are being so fast fulfilled that a message that I brought to you two weeks ago on Russia it's now out of date, and I find myself two weeks later having to catch up with what I didn't know two weeks ago. It's, it's happening that fast. Let me give you an example. And again, these are just examples. This is not something for you to go too deep in, but I remember preaching the message to you about the invasion that Russia was going to uh, launch against Israel in the last days. And uh, I gave you some information of that from three chapters, Ezekiel 37, 38, 39. Those chapters were written about 2,500 years ago. And uh, we talked about the various nations that would be part of that Russian coalition. We talked about how it would happen and that it would not happen in the near term to Ezekiel's writing, that, that it would happen in, in the last days. And you remember the story, God took Ezekiel out to this cemetery, this valley that was full of bones, dry bones, and God said to him, uh, preach to these bones. <laughs> Ezekiel, like, I don't, how, do, how do you preach to dry bones? And, and, and God said, Ezekiel, do you believe these bones can, can live again? Ezekiel is in the graveyard, there's no place to freelance. He said, I don't know. You know, you know. And so when he began to preach, the Bible, it was a kind of a, a spiritual picture that God wanted Ezekiel to see. These bones came together, the hip bone became connected to the thigh bone, and all that's where the song came from. And then they stood up a great army, and I shared with you in that message two weeks ago that Israel, even though it's got one of the smallest populations, it's smaller than 11, than 11 U.S. states in population, it has the ninth, most powerful, it's the ninth most powerful nation in the world, just exactly as God told Ezekiel. Now, most of those verses have to do with in the end time, Israel would come back into the land and God would reform them as a nation. Well, that happened in 1948. Israel got back to Jerusalem in 1967. The U.S. Embassy, U.S. was the first country to recognize the, uh, the capital of Israel as Jerusalem. All those things were prophesied 2,500 years ago, and we're watching them take place before our eyes. Now, in that message, I got into chapter 39, and I got out way in front of my headlights like I told you I was going to do. And there is a section in Ezekiel 39 that after that invasion, the Bible talks about um, finding bodies uh, after, after the war. And in Ezekiel 39, the Bible says that they, when they found bodies, they, the people that found them couldn't bury them. They would put a marker beside the body and they'd have to call in a team to bury the bodies. If you, if you were here that day, I said, maybe that's some kind of contamination. I don't know. And then I read all the newspapers around the world this, not all of them, but a lot of them around the world this week, and I found something out. 
Russians in Ukraine are booby-trapping corpses. I mean, they're leaving corpses in the middle of the street. In one town, they led them, left the mayor and the vice mayor's body out there, so people go out to retrieve the bodies, and they're booby-trapped. And so consequently, that makes all the sense in the world that if people found a body, they would put a marker beside it and then call in for the team to come in and dispose of it safely. Now, is that exactly what the Bible has reference to? I don't know. I just know it makes a lot of sense for a 2,500-year-old prophecy. Okay, same sermon. We talked about the Russian invasion. And the Bible said it would be in the distant future in the last days. Now, before that could happen, God spoke about this repeatedly, that he was going to bring the Jewish people back into their land. If you know anything about history, you know about the diaspora. You know that the Jewish people, first of all, did not have a sovereign nation from the Babylonian invasion in 536 B.C. until 1948 A.D., But you also know that the Jewish people were scattered all over the world. Now, here's what God said in Ezekiel 37. Oh, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back into the land of Israel. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Ezekiel 38, 12, formerly desolate cities that are now filled with people who have returned from exile in many nations. Well, that's been going on definitely, well, really since the Balfour Declaration in 1917, but definitely since the end of World War II and the Holocaust. That's been happening. Jewish people have been returning to the land of Israel. Now, Mary Alice and I had the privilege of being the guest of the Israeli foreign minister back in 2019. And it was a wonderful trip because a lot of people go to Israel as tourists, but the, the, the government of Israel brought us in to see the Israel that a lot of tourists don't see. And it was a wonderful experience. And, and the, the, we, we had the privilege to meet with mayors and ambassadors, and ultimately we met with the foreign minister, and we met with religious leaders in Israel. But one of the things that was so cool was we noticed the conversation between the citizens in Israel, wherever we were, whether we were in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or any of the other cities, and oftentimes they wouldn't necessarily meet themselves, meet each other with like, hello, how are you? The question they would meet each other with was, when did you make Aliyah? When did you make Aliyah? Now, Aliyah is a Hebrew word that means going up. But basically the question is, when did you come back to the land of Israel? When did you make Aliyah? We, we heard that from the Syrian border on the north to, the, to a Gaza border crossing on the south. People, when they meet each other, ask, when did you make Aliyah. I remember having a dinner in Jerusalem with uh, our consul general for the Southwest here in the United States. And so we were just meeting different people in Jerusalem. And we had a chance to, by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, American football is coming to Israel. And so we had dinner with the man who had just become the commissioner for the, um, uh, the Israeli football league, uh, American football. And so we were in an Italian restaurant in Jerusalem. And we sat down, and I bet we hadn't been in conversation for three minutes. And Gilad asked him, when did you make Aliyah? If I remember right, he came from Indiana. But that's just something that the people in Israel talk about all the time. When did you make Aliyah? Well, Aliyah is what Ezekiel was writing about, that God said, I'm going to bring you back into the land in the last days. And even though, you know, the last hundred years seems like a long time to us, it's relatively short when you consider it in juxtaposition to the 2,500 years that it didn't happen. Now, I read this information from an Israeli newspaper 
that came out three hours before I wrote this sermon on Thursday morning. Israel, according to this article, is preparing for record numbers of Jews making Aliyah from Ukraine. Now, it's just the coolest thing what they do. I mean, we, we had a privilege, and I'm, I'm sorry I'm rambling so much about this, this trip, but we actually met with some of the leaders of the organization that is funding Aliyah for people coming back from nations all over, all over the world. And what happens for in Aliyah, they're given a one-way flight to Israel. I like that, one-way flight. And if they have a Jewish parent or a Jewish grandparent, they can come to the land. But there's paperwork that has to be done. But right now, Israel is waiving the paperwork for Ukrainian citizens to come back and live in the land of Israel. And thousands are pouring in what they did not expect. I mean, they, they, they saw that this might happen. What they did not expect is there are record surges of people with Jewish ancestry in Russia who want to move to Israel. And I'm sure people of freedom of all races and all nationalities can see the writing on the wall if they're in Russia. And, and the thing about it is, they haven't waived the paperwork yet for people who want to immigrate from, uh, from Russia. So a lot of Russian uh, citizens with Jewish ancestry are flying to Tel Aviv as tourists and starting their paperwork when they get to Israel. Now, different source, The Guardian, says that it could be upwards of 100,000 who are coming from the Ukraine and from Russia. In fact, the, the Israeli news source Haaretz says the operation, get this, is called the Aliyah Express. Hey, God called it 2,500 years ago. I mean, stuff I didn't even have when I brought the message two weeks ago. I'm having to come back to you and get things straight. I mean, I, again, I haven't gotten into the sermon yet. <clears throat> that would make me nervous, nervous if I heard that. But I'm just telling you, I mean, it's like bam, 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 bam. Just like, as I said, Babe Ruth back in the old days pointed to left field and someone hit the ball right over there. And he did. God is saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. And that, to me, gives me a lot of comfort because when I read the news, it looks like the world is running off the rails. And I want to tell you, and this is just me talking, and, and you can do whatever you want to with this. For the first time in my life, I look at the world and say, what we see today is not sustainable. When I look at human relationships, when I look at the wickedness of our times and the fact that it's global, and there's not a particular economy somewhere in the world that can act as a tow truck to pull the rest of us out, as there has been in the past... The world as we know it today is not sustainable. But I, I want you to know this, that God has everything right on schedule. All our flights are on time, and none of this is catching God by surprise. <clears throat> so like I say, it's not my sermon. I just need to update a two-week-old message to get it straight. What I want to talk to you about on this Palm Sunday is that Jesus is about to make Aliyah. <laughs> He's about to come home. In my talk today, this is probably the simplest title I've ever had, is when Jesus comes to town. When Jesus comes to town. I know it's Palm Sunday. But here's what I want you to understand. When you know what Palm Sunday is about, it's not about history, it's about prophecy. But it starts with history. On an April Sunday morning, almost 2,000 years ago, the Sunday morning before Passover, Jesus came to town. 
he came to Jerusalem. And he was riding on a donkey, and the city went bonkers. And it became perhaps the greatest celebration that the city of Jerusalem had seen to that point. The reason? <laughs> I mean, I'm asking, just, just, let's all just ask the question. Let's unscrew the halos if you grew up in church like I did. And you celebrated Palm Sundays and putting the palms on. <laughs> just unscrew the halos for a moment. And let's ask the question, why would the city of Jerusalem go nuts because a man came riding into the city on a donkey? There's a reason. 4,000 years before, God had begun to issue a series of prophecies about a Savior coming into our world. And people have been looking for that Savior. I mean, in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Bible said he would descend from a woman without the help of a, of a man. And then in um, Genesis 49, he would be from the tribe of Judah. In Numbers 24, 17, there would be a star associated with his birth. Micah chapter 5, he would be born in Bethlehem. Daniel gave us a timetable. So they, they've been expecting the Messiah to come. Now, when Jesus comes in to the world and people begin to see him doing his ministry, he does what people would have expected a Messiah to do. Paralyzed people could walk. Sight-impaired people could see. Um, dead people could came back to life. So when Jesus came into our world, there were those who said, we believe he is the Messiah. They, there was a term for the Messiah in those days in the Jewish world. They would, they would call this person the son of David because God had said in the Old Testament, there will be a descendant of King David through the lineage of the tribe of Judah who will someday come to the throne and this individual will rule forever. And so when Jesus, you may have read this in the Bible where people would call him son of David, like there was a blind man who wanted to be given his sight, and he called him Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That means Jesus, Messiah. Always remember this, Christ is a title, Jesus is a name. Christ is just the Greek form of the word Messiah. So when Jesus came into the world doing the things that Messiah would do, they thought, maybe, 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 maybe he's the Messiah. But then that day when he came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, that sealed the deal. <laughs> you say, well, Mark, I don't, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. What's this thing about a donkey? 500 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Zechariah wrote this, Shout and cheer, daughter Zion. Raise the roof. Your king is coming who makes all things right, humble and riding on a donkey. And when they saw Jesus doing the things the Messiah would do, and he came in that Sunday morning riding on the donkey, people said, this is it. Look at Matthew 21, verse 6. The disciples led the donkey and the colt out, laid some clothes on them, and Jesus mounted. Nearly all the people in the crowd threw their garments down on the road, giving him a royal welcome. Others cut branches from the trees and threw them down as a welcome mat. Crowds went out ahead, and crowds followed all of them, calling out, Hosanna to, hello, David's son. Blessed is he who comes in God's name, Hosanna in the highest heaven. As he made his entrance into Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken. In fact, Jesus, Nemesis, the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everybody's going out after him. Jesus came to town, his town. But again, let's unscrew those halos and let's just look at some objective history. It all went sideways, didn't it? I mean, five days later, this mob was shouting something different, weren't they? I mean, the same ones here were saying, Hosanna, King of, you know, Son of David, Messiah. 
The same ones who were shouting that, five days later, um, the Bible says a mighty roar arose from the crowd, and with one voice they shouted, kill him. And they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The mob, well, we know about the mob today, don't we? The mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified. Well, work with me. What happened? Well, what went south? What went sideways? I mean, they were all like having a great time and a big celebration. It was so big that the Pharisees said, hey, that's it. We just can't do anything else. And yet five days later, everybody's crying out, crucify him. It's, it's really not hard to figure. And it, it's going to get us into what we need to talk about today. The people wanted a particular kind of king. I mean, Isaiah had written about this kingdom he was going to have. The government will rest upon his shoulders. His government and peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. That's pretty much all they read. It was kind of like, this is what we would like. Unfortunately, they didn't read the fine print. I mean, okay, maybe this is the best way of saying it. What they read was he would do what they wanted him to do. He would get rid of Rome, and there would never be another Rome or a Greece or a Persia or a Babylon to kick them around anymore. He would be a king. He would be a, everybody wants an undefeated leader. And we see this in American politics, don't we? I mean, from all stripes, people are happy if they get someone who does what they want him or her to do. But we're not talking about a politician. We're talking about a Messiah. And they saw him riding into town. It's like, here it is. We're, we're finally going to win. We're going to be winners. But by Friday morning, it all seemed to fizzle. Why, 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 why did it fizzle? I mean, it's, it's, again, it's easy. Kings don't get themselves arrested. Kings don't get their beards pulled out. They don't get their faces spat in. They don't get crowns of thorns hammered into their heads. They don't get themselves beaten until their bodies are pulp. And the crowd that cheered him on Sunday jeered him on uh, Friday. And here's why. They said to themselves, false alarm, false alarm. We thought he was. He wasn't. False alarm. That's what a lot of people think about Jesus today. If he's not a genie to give them their three wishes, false alarm. You know, one of the saddest things to me is that many of Jesus' kinsmen today are still looking for the Messiah. My heart breaks. You know, it's a really tough thing when you're expecting someone and that person comes along, you don't recognize that person and you keep looking. One more time, I want to talk to you about the trip that I made several years ago because it was just really a, a fantastic time. I made a lot of great friends. And as I said on this little junket around Israel, I had the privilege of talking with ambassadors and, and with politicians and mayors and, for, and government officials. But on one particular little ride up, we were riding, I think we were going from Tel Aviv to Sea of Galilee. the country had given us an expert on 
Israel's customs, locations, and history. And he and I got to be really good friends. And so when we were riding in the little van, I would almost sit in the aisle and he would turn in the aisle and face me and we would talk for hours. And as we were traveling up toward the Sea of Galilee, I asked him a question. I said, you know I believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And, and then I know we have, a, we have a point of lying off right there. But I said, help me understand something. How will you know the Messiah when he comes? Let's say I'm wrong. I believe it's Jesus, but let's say I'm wrong. How will you know, how will you recognize Messiah? And this brilliant scholar amazed me because he said, well, people say a lot of different things. He said, there are those who say when he comes, he'll ride on a donkey. Others say we'll find him in India with the lepers. And he said, there are some that say the Messiah is not even a person. Maybe it's an age. And I sat there and I thought, it's so hard when you're expecting someone to come and you don't recognize that person and you keep looking when there's only one. On this Palm Sunday in 2022, for you, I am making the case that Jesus was the real thing and that when he came, he was the Messiah and the Savior and the King. And again, I'll put the evidence on the table if you like it. First of all, he fit all the prophecies. Number two, Daniel gave a time frame. He said in 483 years, he, you know, he, it would be the time frame for him to come. Well, that 483 years is long past. He did all the miracles. And then, of course, as we'll talk about next weekend, the most authenticated event of the ancient world is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are layers and layers and layers and layers of proof on that one. So why the gap? Why the gap? When people want their own version of a Savior, we humans have a way of missing the truth. Let me say that one more time. Because that, that could happen in this, in this auditorium on this campus today. When people want their idea of a Savior, we have a way of missing the truth. I mean, I, I hear people say, well, my Jesus would never do that. Well, my Jesus would do this. Well, you don't, you don't own a Jesus in that sense. He is who he is. He is king. But there are those that they demand that they get their own version of a Savior, and truth is not available anymore. Now, there are there's no doubt about it. There are scores and scores of, and hundreds of verses about Jesus' kingdom, about him coming and being a, a king. But the problem with those who rejected Jesus is they conveniently ignored a lot of other prophecies about when he was going to come. I mentioned Daniel a moment ago. Daniel wrote probably somewhere around 500 years B.C. In fact, there are skeptics who claim that Daniel is not an authentic book in the time frame that it was written in because the prophecy is too perfect. And I actually did some teaching on that, how we can know that Daniel fits the times. That was back in Clash 2, if you want to look at it. But Daniel wrote this. He said, after a period of 483 years, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. 
How about that? For those who said he can't be the Messiah because he got himself killed, it was in that 483rd year when Jesus died, and Daniel said it's going to happen. Psalm 22, that was written a 1,000 years before Jesus was born. There's perhaps the most graphic depiction of crucifixion 300 years before the Carthaginians even invented it. In Psalm 22, the psalmist writes, My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, which one could do if he was hanging on a cross. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and they throw dice from my clothing. And then perhaps the most clear presentation of what Jesus came to do the first time, Isaiah 53, 700, 50 years before Jesus was born. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity. Iniquity means crookedness, double standards, the crookedness of us all. Those people that cheered him on Sunday and jeered him on Friday, what they didn't understand was that in order for the king to make a way for us to get into his kingdom, he had to come the first time to pay for our admission. But here's what I do want you to know today, because we are so much closer to that kingdom than what he did 2,000 years ago. That promised kingdom is just as sure as ever, and the signs of the time tell us that our king is about to make Aliyah. He's about to come. Now, I've given you this little schematic before, but let me, let me just do it again. Here, here's the way the end time shakes up. There will be a point where Jesus will come the first time in what we, you may have heard it called the rapture. I like to call it the evacuation. That's what it is. He will come to evacuate us. And uh, I've, I've taught on that. And we'll talk about it some other time. That begins the seven-year tribulation period. God's got unfinished business. He wants to reveal himself to the nation of Israel. And at the end of that, there will be the battle of Armageddon. And the next time Jesus comes, it will be the end of the tribulation. At the end, actually, he's going to come settle Armageddon. He comes the first time for us, second time with us. And then, boom, the king. This is beautiful. I do not know why. cannot wait to find this out. The Bible says there's going to be a 45-day gap in between when Jesus comes at Armageddon and the kingdom begins. I just think planning coronation. That's me. That's free. I don't know. Just curious. But I do want you to understand this. The next time Jesus comes, he's not coming to ride on a donkey. He's, he's not coming to take sides. He's coming to take charge. If you want to read about what this Jesus looks like, open your Bible. Not now, but when you get home, open your Bible to Revelation 1. Look at how he's presented there. That's who's coming next. What will it be like? when Jesus comes to town the next time. I mean, it, it's hard. Listen, I, I, I'm going to just share with you a little bit. I'm going to share with you just some crumbs of what the Bible has to say about what his kingdom is going to be like. And I promise you, it is going to stretch you as far as you can be stretched to imagine this because the world that he is coming to make is so far outside of our realm because we live in a sin-broken world. We live in a world with pain and suffering and death and racism and hostility and injustice. That's the world that we live in. I want you to hear what the world is going to be like. And again, these are just crumbs when Jesus comes to town. 
Hey, there's something we should understand first. Jesus is God and human. When he came to the earth the first time, he suppressed that side of him that was deity because he had a job to do. He was taking our place, living the life for us that we can't live, being subject to all the challenges that we're subject. He laid aside that godness. The next time he comes back, he is coming with that God side of him full bore. That's what's going to be great. Okay, I'm out of time. So let me just read some verses to you, okay? Again, I'm just going to read. You just listen. This is what the world's going to be like when Jesus comes back. Okay, we have war, right? Right now? The Lord will mediate between nations, and he will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords and spears into garden instruments. Nation will no longer fight against nation or train for war anymore. What a cool thing. All the military arsenals will be turned into food-growing implements. Love that. Isaiah 11, verse 4, He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word. Isaiah eleven six. 6, in that day the wolf and the lamb will live together, the leopard will lie down with the baby goat, the calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, a little child will lead them all, the cub and the calf will lie down together, the lion will eat hay like a cow, can't wait to see that, the baby will play safely, the lions are going to be vegan, <laughs> the baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra, and I love this line, nothing will hurt or destroy, Isaiah 32, this one, I, I love this one then everyone who has eyes will be able to see the truth. Oh, my, would I love to see that today. Everyone who has ears will be able to hear it. Ladies, some of you ladies do not punch your husband in the ribs on this next line. Just think about it, okay? Even the hotheads will be full of sense and understanding. Those who stammer will speak plainly. In that day, ungodly, I like this, ungodly fools will not be heroes. And when he comes, Isaiah 35, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. And there's so much more, but let me give you one more. Zechariah 14, 7, there will be continuous day. Only the Lord knows how this could happen. And the Lord will be king over all the earth, and his name alone will be worshipped. So on this Palm Sunday, how about we celebrate the next time he comes? Because this is who's coming next to start his kingdom. The only way to get into his kingdom is to pre-enroll. Because if you wait, Marilyn and I were reading in our devotionals this morning in Gospel of Luke chapter 13. There's a time when that door is going to be bolted. If we die without receiving Christ or Jesus comes, we haven't received him. The only way to receive Jesus is to pre-enroll. I just want to take a few more minutes, maybe three or four or five more minutes. I was sitting on my deck this morning, and it was like God brought an old story to me that happened in my life many, many years ago, over 40 years ago. And when God does that, I think oftentimes he, he wants me to share it. Most of you are not going to have any idea about this time in the United States because you're too young. But in 1979, it was a very difficult year to get gasoline. For various geopolitical reasons, there were gas shortages like all of you who are younger have never seen. At first, there were gas lines at gas stations. Sometimes in Houston, where I was pastoring in those days, a gas line could be two, three hours long. You could be sitting there in line waiting. People ran out of gas waiting to get gas. 
And then after that happened, then they started deciding, well, if your name starts with a particular letter, you can buy gasoline on odd days. And if your name starts with a different letter, you have to buy gas on even days. And finally, it got so bad that gas stations were running out of gas. And you could drive down the road, and there'd be gas stations everywhere, and there'd be signs out front that said out of gas. I tell you all that for a reason. I was 22 years old. I was pastoring an inner, an inner city church in Houston. And a block down from our church was a mechanic who did our work. His name was David. I could never get David to go to church. He's a nice and friendly guy. He thanked me, but he'd never come. Now, it was in this time that David, he had a little place in the country, in the hill country, about 200 miles away from Houston. He and his wife and his parents drove to the hill country of Texas, and on their way back, they got so low on gas that David looked at his tank, knowing where the indicator was, and he realized he could not make it back to Houston and there were no, he, he kept looking for gas stations and they were all closed. And finally, this guy began to pray. I know because he told me the story the next day. He said, God, if you will get me back to Houston and I'll not run out of gas with my elderly parents in the back seat, if you get me back to Houston, I will go to church tomorrow. And he did. On that Sunday morning, I looked out there, and there was David and his wife. And I was surprised, and he told me the rest of the story. That was the only time David ever came to our church. You never saw him again. <laughs> he made God a promise, kept his promise. But that morning, his mom and dad had filled out a visitor's card and checked that they would like a visit. On the next Monday morning, I went into his parents' house. His mom was there by herself. She was 71 years old. When you're 22, that seems very old. <laughs> and I began to thank her for coming. And I don't know how, but somehow in the conversation, I asked her, her started to call her name. If you were to die today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? And she said, no, I do not. And for 15 minutes, I shared who Jesus was. And she and I knelt down on the floor in front of her coffee table, and she gave her life to Jesus Christ. I went back that night, and her husband accepted Christ. The following Saturday, I stood in the baptistry with both of them, and they followed the Lord in believer's baptism. I tell you that story for a reason. I really do believe God was trying to get David's attention. And in the process of time, his mom and dad both came into the family of God. Now here's where it gets serious for you and me. I have a belief that no matter who you are, whether you grew up in church, or you even consider yourself a non-theist or an agnostic. I believe God will try to get your attention. And he will pull you to himself. 
You might never admit that to me in a million years, but deep in your heart, you know it's true. And somebody could say, well, Mark, God's never, you know, God doesn't reach out to me. Well, two things are possible. Maybe he will, or maybe you've gone past the point of no return. Anyone can be saved who wants to be saved. The problem is if the Holy Spirit quits knocking, you never will have that desire. I don't know. That's over my pay grade, as President Obama said. I know this. I know that when God knocks, some people open the door and some people close it. But you guys know one of my favorite verses in 2 Samuel 14, which says that God is dreaming up ways to get rebels to come home. I think he dreamed up a scheme that Saturday in Houston, 40 some odd years ago. And a man and a woman came to him and one closed the door. What are you gonna do? I may never know, it's not, you don't need to tell me. I may never know. But if you have a sense that God is trying to get your attention, these are serious times and the clock is ticking. I mean, it's, it's like that. Remember the game, the Kansas game the other night and there's just like four seconds left on the clock? I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I do think the clock is ticking down. And if you want to accept Jesus, do it now. Do it now. Would you bow your head with me, please? And you're, you're just here and you say, Mark, I want to settle this. Then I want you to pray right now. And I'm going to pray this prayer slowly. And if you want to, you can say it with me. And then God will hear your prayer. Ready? Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I can't fix myself. But I believe you love me very much. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. And since Jesus is alive... I want him to be my savior and my king. In Jesus' name, amen. Stay with me just another moment. If you just pray with me, I have a gift box I want to give you. And when you open it up, you'll see a new spring Bible, just like the one I have up here with me. I wrote a little book called My New Walk with God because you say, Mark, I had to pray, but I have no idea really what happened to me. That's what this little book is about. As I always say, I have ADD. I don't write long books. It'll be easy to read. There's a journal in here and some other things. Now, here's the thing. If you're watching online or if you're even here in the campus, if you want this, all you need to do is get your phone out and text PRAYED, just that word, PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97,000. If you're watching online, follow the instructions. We'll get this out to you. If you're on campus, you don't need to wait any longer. Just go back to any info center, and you can say, I pray with Mark, and they'll have this for you. You can take it with you today. Thanks. God bless. We'll see you next Easter weekend. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.